What I've learned so much of it is that you can't drive continuity of a business at the top. You have to figure out how to bring it down to the people doing the work and who understand what's going on day in and day out. Welcome to the Fail Over Plan podcast. I'm Shane Matthew. I think it's safe to say that COVID-19 rocked the retail apparel industry in 2020. Since the beginning of the event, several companies have filed for bankruptcy or are just about there as they experienced not only a total loss in retail consumers, but also their workforce access to their sites and a supply chain that was equally devastated. On this episode of the Failover Plan podcast, we're talking with Sheba Phillip, who serves as the CEO of Akola, a globally inspired jewelry brand on a mission to empower women in need in Eastern Africa. Prior to that, Sheba served in leadership roles in Mandela's International and Kraft Foods, as well as JCPenney. Sheba and Ecola were faced with some serious odds for a small retail and manufacturing company. Imagine having every department in your organization, as well as your primary customers, all go down at the same time. And as you'll hear in her story, this all happened at one of the most inopportune times in the company's growth phase. But this episode contains some very similar themes to those we've heard before. I totally understand the value of preparing before a disruption, but sometimes when you're caught off guard, you just have to deal with the problems in front of you the best you can and keep moving forward. And as you listen, you can see that's just what Ecola did. Be sure to subscribe to the Failover Plan podcast. So you get access to all our episodes. You can check out failoverpodcast.com or find us on iTunes and other podcast sites and leave us a review. And now, on to the show. Sheba, again, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So let's start a little bit uh, to tell my audience a little bit about you as a person and how you kind of got to this role of CEO of Ecola. Sure. Um, well, I think I would summarize it by saying that for the past 20 years, I've really have built a passion and a focus around the intersection of business and mission. I started my career in the food and beverage industry, working for Kraft Foods, I then left Kraft uh, Foods after about a 10-year career there and joined JCPenney uh, as part of their turnaround team. Between those stints of Kraft and JCPenney, I spent some time at International Justice Mission, which is a large NGO in D.C. that fights human trafficking. So all of my career and my, my time has been spent around what I call redemptive business, business that transforms people and societies and cultures and the world. Uh, and so that's why I'm super excited to be the CEO of Ecola. With Ecola, you know, it's it's uh, primarily a retail operation, but what's the focus and you know, how do they get such a cool name? Okay, great question. <laughs> well, Ecola means she works in a local Ugandan dialect. And Ecola was birthed um, in Uganda, and it is built with a vision of empowering women in extreme poverty through manufacturing and through job creation within manufacturing. Uh, the story of Ecola started about 12 years ago. It was founded by Brittany Underwood, and she joined, sorry, she went to Uganda on a missions trip with the idea of just helping women and children. So she then started a journey of trying to figure out a way to give jobs to women in Africa, specifically in Uganda. She started making jewelry with them under a tree. 
She brings the jewelry to Dallas, tries to sell it in small boutiques. And before you know it, three years ago, Neiman Marcus picked up Ocola uh, and the jewelry line and decided to partner with Brittany to kind of design and co-create this brand. And so Ocola was soon becoming one of the first luxury jewelry brands that had impact at its core. And it was coming out of uh, Africa specifically. Yeah, that's amazing. So give us a little bit of scope of how big the operations are. Are you based in one location in Uganda or do you have other spaces uh, around the globe? How does it look? Sure. yeah, the the headquarters of Acola is based in Dallas, in downtown Dallas, and we've got our strategy, corporate kind of team there, finance, accounting, uh, sales, and marketing. So all of the building blocks of you know how you build a commercial business and a lifestyle retail brand is based in Dallas. But the heart of Acola really sits in Uganda. We have a manufacturing facility in Jinja. We source materials, uh, you know, within Uganda, also in neighboring countries like Ghana, but we do all of our manufacturing there. So we're vertically integrated. We source our materials, we produce and develop the product, commercialize it and ship it back to the U.S. for distribution. Now with your uh, operations uh, being, is it primarily jewelry that uh, is sold? Yes. So our core business right now is jewelry, um, accessible luxury jewelry. At the same time, we also uh, have started to build out a DIY business. So this is more experiential jewelry making where you can make really beautiful bracelets and necklaces with handcrafted elements and beads and materials coming from Jinja. You know, what was the picture of Ecola? Where, where were you at as a company um, before all this stuff started to happen? We were in this radical transformation of going from a nonprofit that was run as a nonprofit for 12 years to this, you know, company for-profit brand with a heart and a mission. And we were in final, final rounds of securing a significant investment with the Development Finance Corporation, which is a U.S. government entity that invests uh, U.S. government dollars in businesses that are doing uh, really strong kind of positive work in third world economies. So that's where we were when when the pandemic broke. When did you start to kind of get a sense of of COVID being more than just simply an, uh, a problem, you know, outside of the country? When did you start to feel mm-hmm. that pressure at Ecola? It's actually, it's a funny story. I can actually remember the moment. So it was the week of March, I want to say uh, March 12th, I think. Uh, yeah. And I was actually scheduled to be in D.C., for a final meeting with the DFC and our head of Uganda. So we actually had a flight scheduled to, to DC and she, you know, she comes in and we're ready to go. And then we start to hear things like lockdowns and social oh distancing, and we're not sure we could even get on the flight to, to DC. So Victoria and I, you know, pray and we, we, we get on this flight. I still remember we get on the flight. There's like six people. Everyone's Lysoling themselves and putting wipes. I mean, it was like I never used so much Purell in my entire life. I mean, I was getting, I think, a little bit slightly, you know, my brain was feeling a little light from all the fumes of the Lysol I had been putting all over myself in the plane. 
we leave the meeting and then things start to rapidly accelerate. Wow. You know, Brittany calls me on the phone. She's like, where are you guys? Brittany's your founder. The founder. She's like, yeah. we're calling a national lockdown. You know, we're thinking, you know, this is going to be really, you know, tough, you know, on us closing our seed round and then also trying to continue to grow sales. So all automatically we start strategizing, like, what do we do to keep the business moving in case things really start to go south in retail? Wow. So we get on the plane, we land back in Dallas, and then immediately uh, Victoria gets a phone call saying Uganda is about to go under lockdown. So that was really the moment. I think the moment was when I was sitting in my kitchen, had just got back from D.C., was supposed to be this, you know, virus you're hearing about in China became suddenly a global, global pandemic. And I, before I knew it, I was rapidly having to shift into triage mode and kind of think about how to keep this business afloat. So let's just recap. Sheba is a brand new CEO with less than a year in the job for a company that has a global operation with a truly important mission. And the business is on the edge of a major investment success with the U.S. government's own Development Finance Corporation, or DFC. And then COVID hits. This interview is really interesting to me because all I could think about was, what would I do if I was leading the business continuity strategy? Where would I start? Some of us may have actually been in that position with either a plan that didn't completely address the issues that this pandemic brought to our front door or so many moving parts, it was overwhelming. Now try leading a whole company through it without any outside help. So when you're thinking about, you know, at that moment, when you're starting to think, how do I keep the business operating? Did you have any sort of plan? Did you have anything kind of strategized before about how to keep the business operating in times of stress or disruption? No, we did not. Because, you know, we were uh, for a long time a nonprofit. Then we were trying to run a restructure and transition the company and and raise capital. So we're such an early stage company that those kind of formal processes and procedures and contingency plans were just not built. Right. Mm -hmm. So as you were thinking through this and strategizing, and I have to brag on you a bit, you're, you're Harvard trained, you're, you're educated, you're CEO, you know, this should be simple, right? (laughs) (laughs) What was your, kind of like first, second, third, did you, did you have a kind of prioritization of what parts of the business you yes. needed to, to tackle? Well, the, the first thing I thought about was, do I have enough toilet paper? Because I don't <laughs> think, I don't think I can lead a company if I'm not personally cared for myself. I actually, no jokes aside, I, I was like, okay, I need to first make sure I'm in a place of, you know, I, I can, lead emotionally, spiritually, psychologically this process. So toilet paper was definitely going to be a value add in that process. So, so then the next step was, you know, as much as the business means, uh, business performance is obviously critical. The most important thing is the staff, right? If we don't have a team that's cared for uh, and served in this process, we don't have a business. So m- most importantly, we quickly ran it. We went into like, what do we do with our staff? And we are fortunate that our Dallas staff uh, is very small. We've got about nine people on staff. And the only person that really had to be in the office was someone who's doing fulfillment and, um, you know, for e-commerce and for our, our, our retail partners. 
So we quickly triaged a process of getting our team uh, working from home. And we actually still had to be in the office occasionally. And so we would work, we worked out a schedule where no, no more than two people would ever be in the office at the same time and they would be in different rooms. And so we really started to quickly work on a workflow that allowed our team in Dallas to stay, stay working from home and a communication cadence where they could alert each other when they're coming into the office so that we really eliminate and reduce risk. That so was- did you have a technology all set up for this type of thing? I mean, communications, conferencing, all that sort of so thing? We, because we were a global company, we were already on Google Video Hangout and chat and all of that because we had to do so much teleconferencing because we were working so much with our Africa team. So it really didn't wasn't a huge transition for us. But I think it, it just the use of video calling um, and really more like seeing each other in person that was already happening, but we just accelerated that more and more uh, in in this crisis. Hmm. So that was in Dallas. And then in Uganda is much more complicated because we've got about 183 women in extreme poverty. They're coming to work each day. Many of them walk to work. They're not, they don't have TVs in their home. They don't have the ability to be educated and read what's happening in the news and see what's happening. So they were, they were actually, our, our biggest thing was making sure they were educated on what was happening in the world, what was mm. happening around them, and they understood how to care for themselves. So we uh, pretty like quickly moved all of our women back to their homes. Then we moved our management team, you know, obviously to the office, but uh, sorry, I'm working from home. But the biggest thing was how do we continue to service the business? Because while we were still seeing retail shutdown, we were starting to see a growing e-commerce business. We were starting to still see orders come in from our wholesalers. We had to continue to operationalize the business. So my amazing team in Uganda worked out a system of how to drop off materials to each individual village home um, and have them make the make the bracelets and then have somebody literally in a Buddha Buddha, which is kind of a it's like a rickshaw in India. It's like a transportation. Yeah, it's like very rudimentary bike like you can mobilize. Someone would go around and pick up the finished product and run it, run it to the DHL drop-off center to kind of get it back, get it into the wow. So, so I want to just pause for a second on that thought right there. So your leaders on the ground there yes. who were primarily helping the manufacturing operation, monitoring yes. that, they they're the ones who came up with this alternative strategy yes. like on the fly. Yes, yes, and I and part of what's so great, what I've learned so much is so much of it is that you cannot drive business continuity management, particularly in a crisis from the top, you have to figure out a way to engage the critical people in your organizations and your functions that are on the ground and are doing the work day in and day out. So your biggest job, I think, as a CEO is to organize decision-making, organize collaboration and drive empowerment. So so what I really did was just tell Victoria, we got to figure out a plan. How can I support you? And quickly, Victoria put together the plan, put it on paper, sent it to me. We dialogued on it. I had a few questions, but really ultimately, I was there to support her and trust that she would get it done. 
And so then, so that was really kind of how we do the work and she would send pictures and we would, you know, engage each other. But, you know, really it was driving, empowering the team to make real time decision making, quick decision making and trusting them. As part of that, what we did wow. was we immediately called a stand-up meeting. So we called it this coronavirus stand-up call. We still have it. It started in March. It's 15 minutes every single day. It ended up becoming probably 45 minutes, but it would be me and my executive team in yeah. Uganda and in Dallas. And we would just do a round table. Okay, what are the issues you're seeing? What decisions do we have to make together? What do we have to communicate to the organization? What things do we stop doing? What things do we start doing? And through that is how we were able to do some real-time decision-making because we were, we were being quick and nimble and literally getting on a call every every day, top of the hour, afternoon in Uganda, and just kind of basically triaging together. So did the workers um, that were responsible for continuing the jewelry manufacturing, did they have special equipment that they needed or is this primarily, you know, tools that they could check out or take home with them and, and work from home? Yeah, great question. Uh, we had to do a couple shifts. The first thing is that we uh, moved to more, we, we, we make these uh, beautiful kind of care, called Karatasi beads or they're kind of hand rolled and wrapped with an African paper. It's just, it's, they're beautiful. And those beads are very, very easy to do at home. And so we would just drop off the materials. They would wrap, they would make the beads. You know, uh, uh, we, we are known for our stretch bracelets and beaded bracelets and necklaces and they, they would make them and they can do them so, so well. Uh, but our, our more sophisticated jewelry is done with higher and materials. So we would just work on um, shifts and schedules where we do a lot of our bead wrapping and stuff at home. And then we would bring our horn artisans in uh, selectively in small groups to kind of okay. finish out pieces. So we had to kind of ebb and flow mm -hmm. uh, the, the supply chain and operations. But our, our biggest shift was we changed our product focus. And so we started to really brainstorm and think and say, okay, you know what? People are at home. Uh, they're not really making or sorry, wearing a lot of jewelry, you know, at as I mentioned before, we had a we had a DIY uh, kit. Uh, it's a bracelet making kit with those paper beads mm -hmm. uh, that you can make that you can kind of string together and make your own bracelet. It had done very very well at Neiman Marcus, and we had never brought it to our own website. Well, we decided, what if we offered that DIY kit online and start to market that as a, an idea? Plus, it, it uses the beads that are super easy to make, and we can quickly do it from our women's homes and in their villages and quickly, you know, source the materials fast. Ah, okay. So we were having our women make these amazing bracelet kits. We were selling them uh, pretty quickly on our site, and we were getting a lot of PR coverage. So in that March, April, May timeframe, we were covered in Us Weekly, People, BuzzFeed, Huff, Huffington Post, E-Online. Uh, I mean, just incredible coverage around Ocola's DIY bracelet kit as, a, that, as an idea that was just really meaningful and relevant during the pandemic. So when you mentioned, you know, you know your supplies and you focused on those items that you had the most of, right? Um, and that tended to be the part of the kits that you're talking about. Um, tell me a little bit about the supply chain aspects to this. I mean, were you impacted at all by COVID and how did you overcome those challenges? Yes, we were in some cases because we do source some of our metals from China. 
and and because of you know the it started with China was shutting down their factories, so we couldn't even get the metals and some of the materials that we needed. So we had to quickly find other uh, ways to supplement. So we actually went into a mode of how do we reinvent our product through existing materials. So we did a stock count of every single metal component that we had in Uganda. And we had our design team like basically look at all the images of that product and come up with, sorry, those metal pieces and come up with new designs and new jewelry that doesn't require external sourcing of materials. So knowing what you know now, having gone through most of it, we're still obviously still in the midst of COVID and it's, it's, but it's, it's getting better, but knowing what you know now, would you do anything differently with your operational response to this event? Would there be any changes to your approach or, um, you know, the way you handled it? You know, that's a great question. I think that, uh, I think one thing I, I think overall, you know, as far as the idea of, you know, stand up meetings with your executive team, driving more empowerment down to your teams to make real time decision making, making sure we had, the right uh, structures in place to connect and to collaborate, uh, thinking and pushing ourselves to, to drive continuous agile change through, you know, how we think about what product is relevant to, you know, how do we source materials and reuse materials to make it. I mean, all of those things I feel like are not just pandemic ideas. Those are just great business ideas. And so if anything, I think it forced us to really push our creativity and our agility, which I'm very thankful in some ways for COVID because I think these are things that we're going to take into our long-term growth plans as a business. I think the one thing I would, I, I, I think I would have not done was I think when you're in panic mode, sometimes you want to throw a lot of ideas at the wall and execute a bunch of different things. So I think our DIY idea was the best one, but we had a couple of other ones. I think we tried to quickly just respond to, and we burned a lot of resources and time by chasing after a lot of different things. I think in a response mode, it's really important to be kind of surgical and decide as much what you say no to as versus what you say yes to. Because if you start to do a lot of different ideas, let's do this, let's do that, let's do this, you start to, you know, really lose valuable time and resources and burn out your team. So I think, because you have to play the long game when it comes to something like this. And so I think for me, the biggest regret would be being more focused on those innovation ideas and really executing one or two very well versus trying a lot of things and hoping it works out. So uh, any documentation now that you have a plan that you kind of have in your head? Or are you going oh. to keep the... <laughs> the strategy uh, locked away in the Sheba vault. Oh, you know, honestly, I really should document it. Cause as I'm talking it out with you, I'm like, man, you know, I, this needs to be put together because we, you know, we need to be ready for the next, whatever it's going to be. And I, and I think, uh, yeah, I, I need to do that. I absolutely need to do that. And so Shane, if you'd like to help me with that, I'd be happy <laughs> to hire you. I think I'm busy that day. I'm sorry. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Of course we can help you. Um, so listen, let's, th this has been an amazing discussion. I, I really enjoyed hearing how you approach this problem because obviously you've hadn't, 
you know, got a wealth of experience in dealing with this particular thing, a global pandemic. Neither has any of us. Um, so amazing job. I'm so excited to have you on here. Before we leave, how can people learn more about Ecola and even you? How, how can they uh, see how Sheba's doing and, and how the company's doing? How do they get to you on social media or other uh, sites? Great. Well, you can definitely follow up, follow me on LinkedIn uh, and you can find me under Sheba Phillip. Uh, and then you can also follow Acola. We'll be posting. We usually post what's going on with the company and big PR wins and, and things that are happening with the business. And then we would love you to join the community on Acola.co if we are in the business of changing lives. And we would love to have more people be part of that business. Awesome. Thank you so much, Sheba Philip. Thank you, Shane Matthew. I appreciate <laughs> it. <laughs> try again. Thank you so much, Sheba. All right. Thank you for joining us for the Failover Plan podcast. Before we end, I want to remind you to subscribe to the show. You can either visit our website, failoverpodcast.com, or you can find us on iTunes and other podcast sites. When you hit subscribe or add your name to our newsletter, you'll never miss a show, and we've got a lot more coming your way. Thanks again for listening, and remember, why learn how to do something on your own when there's got to be someone else who may have already learned this the hard way?